The scripture reading for this evening comes from, nope, sorry, this teaching for this evening is based on Psalm 124. This is God's word. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel say now, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we uh, come to look at Psalm 124, our psalm for tonight is in your worship folder. If you don't have a, a, a tablet or an iPhone or a Bible with you to follow along, and we're continuing a series uh, from the book of Psalms, and we're just looking at 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and the reason we're looking at these is they all share the same title. They're all, they all share the same title of, the, of Psalms of Ascent, and these, these psalms, in all likelihood, would have been sung by God's people three times a year as they would have journeyed to Jerusalem from wherever their home was in, in Judea and the surrounding area to go and to worship God and to celebrate what he had done for them. And tonight we come to Psalm 124, which is in some ways rather similar to Psalm 121, which we looked at a few weeks ago. They're, they're both what we might call psalms of help or even confidence. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, and the question that might, might rise in your mind is, what's different about them if, if they both talk about help? And I think a helpful way to, to tell the difference is that in Psalm 121, what we learn is that the Lord is your keeper. And in Psalm 124, we discover that the Lord is your defender. And it's interesting also to note that at the beginning one, th- this psalm was actually attributed to David. A few of these psalms of ascent um, also will say, um, of David. And most commentators see that as, a, as an indicator that this is probably a psalm that David wrote, and it's been enfolded into this collection that is now also called the Psalms of Ascent. And when you, the very first two verses, what you notice is that God takes sides in this psalm. It says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. God, in this psalm, He takes sides. And to notice that, I think, may cause us some discomfort. Because I think for many people, and myself included, it's, it feels a bit uncomfortable to, to read that God would actually take sides, that he would find himself aligning what he's doing with some people and not others. And then the question, I think, that comes up is, well, then whose side is God on? And when you look in verse 1, we get the answer. It says, if, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side... Let Israel now say. This is a psalm where God's people 
have come to discover, and David in particular, that God is on their side. That God is on David's side. And who are these people, this, this group of people called Israel? These are God's chosen people throughout the Old Testament. These are the people that God entered into a relationship with and has made promises to and has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I think even when you hear that kind of language, especially in the context of God here um, taking sides, it's hard not to read this and think, well, is God playing favorites? Or are we begin to think that God's sides with those who live a good life? Or he sides with people who are not quite as bad as maybe those people over there? And what we need to remind ourselves at the very beginning when we read these opening verses is something that, that the, the Bible repeats again and again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you were to flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, or actually chapter 9, it's one of the most penetrating passages in the Old Testament that helps us to understand who is God's side, who, who, whose side is he really on. And does it have anything to do with the people themselves? And Deuteronomy 9 makes it absolutely clear that God is not on the side of Israel because there's something about them. In fact, what we read again and again is that they were rebellious against God. That God was gracious to them, not because of who they were, but despite who they were. And in fact, we see the same emphasis in the New Testament when we come to Jesus and his ministry. One of the great examples of this is when Jesus was sitting down, having dinner with tax collectors and sinners, and there were were religious leaders present. They were called the Pharisees, and they saw him. And they began to ask this question, why does Jesus eat with these people, with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what's the point right away that I want us to grasp as we enter into this story? Is to, is to understand that, that God, to say that God is your help is also to say that he is your defender. What this means is, is that God is on the side of those who are in desperate need of help. That's what it means. Those are the people that God sides with. Those who realize they are utterly helpless and are hopeless without him. And therefore, Psalm 124 is really David looking back on his own experience of how God has intervened and helped in his life and how it has shaped him. And so what I want to do tonight is to look at this psalm to see how should it shape us. How can we learn from what David writes here about what he discovered about God as his help that should shape us. And so I want to look at this psalm and look at the need for God's help, the power of God's help, and the gift of God's help. So first, let's look at the need for God's help in verses 2 to 5. 
Look with me here, first of all. Let's think about, for a moment, the background or the situation that we we learn about in this psalm. If you look here in verse 2, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, or in verse 3, the second half of that verse, when their anger was kindled against us. Now, one of the things that, that you have to know when you read the Psalms is um, sometimes we wish it might give us a bit more detail. You might wonder, well, okay, who are these people that you're talking about that rose up against you? Why were they angry at you? What caused this conflict? Those are all details that I certainly would like to know. Perhaps you would too. And yet, it doesn't tell us that. It doesn't give us all those details. And when a psalm is general like that, it's not that it's less useful. It's actually more useful. Because now it actually invites you to fill in those gaps and to think about your own life in light of what you read here. When something becomes so specific and so detailed, it actually can become less helpful to you. But here we have the background for this psalm is really conflict that David had encountered uh, when people rose up against him. And in light of the whole Bible, this could be, uh, this could refer to, for example, David thinking back about the Exodus when God brought God's people out of Egypt and Pharaoh and the Egyptians were against the Israelites and wouldn't let them go. Or it could be referring to David's experience running from Saul in 1 Samuel again and again and again. Saul pursuing David and threatening his life. Or it could be after David becomes king and he's in the midst of trying to establish the kingdom of Israel and to establish peace for this kingdom. And he's having to fight the Philistines and the Edomites, the other enemies of the Israelites at the time. The psalm just doesn't spell that out. But what is clear here is that there is trouble, and particularly with other people, other people who are against you. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you'll, you, you might read some psalms and, and think, man, I, perhaps you read this psalm and in your particular situation or in your life, you're like, yes, I, I can think of situations where, yes, people have risen up against me that their anger was kindled against me, and they wanted nothing but to take me down. Now, I can think of situations where there's been conflict and disagreement. I can't really think of situations that have been this severe. And I, I got to thinking about that. I was like, why, why do I sometimes read the Psalms and feel like my life is really different than what I'm reading? And that happened to me in this psalm. And sometimes the answer is it's because, well, it really is a different situation, and we, we do live at a different time. However, I got to thinking, I'm saying, why is it that I often don't experience opposition? Or why is it that I often, as a follower of Jesus, don't experience people rising up against me or being angered at me. 
Now, surely people can have gotten angry at me for, for stupid things I've done. <laughs> I can think of lots of those examples. But what about because you are a follower of Jesus, if you were here this evening, have you had those experiences where because you name the name of Christ, you find yourself being opposed and confronted And maybe it's not even because you say anything, but just decisions you make or the way you behave or the way you don't behave or what you're willing to say or what you're not willing to say. And as I was thinking about this, it made me begin to wonder, if that isn't happening to us, not all the time or even most of the time, but ever, if that's never happening to us, I think we have to ask ourselves, Is our Christianity, has it become so domesticated, so inoculated, so familiar or acceptable to every other part of our life that it's actually losing its power? It's actually losing its good news. It's actually losing the promise and the hope that Jesus came to give you and me and the world. I put that out there for you to think about. But I want you to think, what is the basic point here in, these, in this opening few verses for the need for God's help? Look here. Whatever the circumstances may be, notice the, 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 the language here in verse 3. They would have swallowed us up alive. It's, it's an image of uh, most likely a ferocious animal who would have come and had such power and such control and domination you couldn't have escaped, would have swallowed you whole. Or take later on in verse 4 and 5, that the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. The need for God's help is pretty straightforward. What David's telling us here is... You cannot save yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. That is the first step in understanding of being shaped by knowing that God is your helper. God didn't come to just assist you, to give you a good pass, or to set you up for a touchdown. He came to make you alive to save you, to rescue you. And these words David is putting in front of us highlight for us that we cannot save ourselves. And David here, think about this psalm like a flashback. David is reflecting on an experience in the past, and it's left a permanent mark on him. And why, why it's important for us to notice that is because David's helping us to understand that you don't discover... You're not shaped by knowing that God is your help in a vacuum. Apart from trouble, apart from difficulty, you discover that and are shaped by it in the midst of it. And the reason that is true is because really there is no other time in your life when who you really are and what you really need becomes most obvious than when you are in the midst of trouble. 
I, I was listening uh, to a friend talk about this recently where he had spoken to someone in his church who had lost their job. And this person was telling my friend, he's like, you know, I, I thought, I, I, I mean, I've always believed I'm, I'm a sinner in need of grace. But when I didn't get a paycheck, I saw things about myself I did not know were there. Or take, for example, if someone you loved and have, and have given yourself to all of a sudden says, you know, I don't love you anymore. I, I don't want to be with you anymore. That will reveal things about yourself that perhaps you didn't even know were there. Or at work, when faced with decisions, particularly lucrative ones maybe, or decisions that may advance your career, and you think you're, you have something good coming only to find out that somebody else steps in and gets it, and you're unjustly looked over, it reveals things about you that perhaps you never knew were there. Certainly parenting does this. I didn't know I was an angry man until <laughs> I had kids. You can laugh at that because I know everyone here understands that. Um, trouble reveals things about you that you didn't know were there. You don't discover that God is your helper in the abstract or in a, in a vacuum, but actually in the midst of it. Now, the helplessness that comes through in these verses 2 through 5, it is then matched by God's power in verses 6 to 7. Look what we see here, the power of God's help. Blessed be the Lord who's not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Now, there's a lot of imagery here. There's an image here of a predator who is lurking in the shadows, perhaps, watching you, watching your every move, waiting for you to be vulnerable, to not be paying attention, only to then pounce on you and shred you apart. That's how graphic the image is. Or take in verse 7 the image of a, of a snare or a trap where there is a trap that's set for you and you actually get stuck in it and you can't get out. And the one who has set the trap isn't back yet. But you know He's coming, and you cannot rescue yourself. You're utterly at the mercy of whatever this fowler is. See, the power of God's help that we see here is that, if we could put it this way, that God outmaneuvers both of these troubles, the predator and the fowler, that God protects against this prowling predator. And I couldn't help but think of the story of Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6 where he's thrown into this den and God protects him from this predator. Daniel is untouched. Or take this idea here in verse 7 where there's like a bird who is caught in a trap only to become someone else's dinner in short in a short amount of time. And David says, we have escaped twice. 
that God has set him free. He's rescued him. He's no longer in danger. And I want you to think about it like this. That, you know, the power of God's help here, it reaches into these kinds of situations. And you're invited to to reflect on these images and, and ask yourself, how is God, how do I see his power in my life? For example, take the idea of God breaking the snare that's keeping you trapped. Think about perhaps people's opinions and expectations of you. Or what about the power of sin in your life? Things in your life that you continue to do again and again and again and and again. And you need rescue from that. Here David is telling us, this God, he protects and he breaks the power that keeps us trapped. Even when there's opposition and there's trouble and there's hardship, that there is good news. And the main point I want you to hear on this second point, and it's a tandem to the first one, when we talked about you cannot save yourself. Well, that's really not good news if that's all we have. But the good news we find here is that salvation belongs to the Lord. That the battle belongs to the Lord. Those are the two main points I want you to hear from this psalm. If you hear, don't hear anything else. David is helping us to see that to know that God is our help means that you begin to take into the very depths of your being that you cannot make yourself right. You are far, you are too far gone. And if I could put it this way, if you find that hard to believe, that's proof how far gone you and I really are. You cannot rescue yourself. But the good news is here is we discover that salvation belongs to the Lord and not to us. And that's, I think, one of the hardest things to accept. Especially for upwardly mobile, competent people. It's very hard to believe that you cannot rescue yourself. So what, though, would it look like if you begin to believe this? Look at the beginning of verse 6. Blessed be the Lord. Verse 6 here begins with a word of blessing, a word of praise, a word of adoration, of affection, of rejoicing in what God has done. And I, I want you to think about this. If you, how you can tell, if you are beginning to believe in the depths of your being that you cannot save yourself and that salvation belongs to the Lord, look for joy in your life. Look for rejoicing. And one of the, what there's a, a Samuel Rutherford who is a, he's dead, been dead a long time, a very old pastor. He once wrote a, a very pithy quote that I will never forget. And he said, rejoicing is as much a command in the Bible as repenting. Rejoicing is as much a command in the Bible as repenting. Let that one sit with you for a while. Particularly as a melancholy Presbyterian, uh, 
it's not the repenting part kind of comes it's not hard to be negative what is hard is the rejoicing part it's the delighting part it's it's the spontaneous moments of adoring God because of what he has done how he has helped how he rescues you now verses 1 through 7 they tell us about our need for God's help and the power of God's help And as we finish, I want to look at verse 8 because it helps us to see what's the gift that God imparts to those that he helps, to all who trust in him. Verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, it'd be easy to kind of run past this. This is the end, the conclusion to the psalm. But before you do that, think about this. David has just recounted a desperate situation A life or death situation. And then followed it up with rejoicing in how God has rescued him and protected him and set him free. And he ends with, our help is in the name of the Lord. You know what this verse 8 really is? It's a confession of faith. It's a confession of lived faith, of discovery. This is not just a theological statement. This is something David has come to experience and know because of what he's gone through and he's discovered that God is his helper. So what is the gift that God gives? And if I could put it to you in one word, it's assurance. It's confidence. Here, David makes this statement that is a confession of faith, but it's also an assured faith. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I am confident of that. I am assured of that. Not because my theology is accurate or that I just have the right answers, but I am assured because God has helped me he has rescued me. He's delivered me. And I can point to it. I can tell you about it. Now, what's that feel like? What, do, what does assurance feel like? I think two ways based on this passage. In light of verses 1 through 5, it would be pride, thinking that you can save yourself, giving way to humility. Humility. And secondly, looking at verses 6 to 7, it would feel like fear giving way to rejoicing. And not only that, assurance then also does lead to patience in the present and confidence for the future. When he says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, David is saying something that's true about him right then and there and is taking him into the future. Now, where does this assurance come from? Maybe this is, is, is already patently clear to you, but if it's not, this assurance comes from God's acting on behalf of his people. Of all the things David's already described in verses 1 through 7. Now, how can you be sure God is your help? Like David. Well, when we step back and we look at the, the scriptures as a whole, well, you can be sure God is your help because he sent his only son 
He so loved the world that he gave. Now, and now we're back to this question of, well, whose side is God on? God is on the side of the world that is lost apart from him. That means no matter who you are tonight, what path you've taken to come into this room this evening, the good news of the gospel is that God is on the side of sinners, of the weak, of the vulnerable, of the helpless, and it doesn't matter what your resume says. He is on the side of those who cannot rescue themselves. And he has sent Jesus as the proof of that. Now, maybe you might be thinking, though, what if it doesn't feel like God is on your side? My guess is there any number of you who are here this evening and you're asking that question, or you're thinking that. This might be fine. This might be what the Bible says, but I don't feel like God is on my side. What are you supposed to do? Well, first of all, either you may not be on God's side. You may have to come to terms with that you actually are living in rebellion against him, steering clear from him, not wanting having to do with him. Or maybe you are on God's side. You are one of his children, and you're having a hard time seeing this good news. Well, the answer to both kinds of people is the same. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's what God has done in Christ. And if you belong to Jesus, here's what I want you to know. God is always on your side. He can't but be on your side. And if I can say it like this, how you feel about that or what you think about that isn't most important. What's most important is that God has said, I am on your side in Christ. I would cease to be God if I wasn't because Jesus came and he suffered and died. He was forsaken so that you never would be. And you could always know no matter what you're going through or where you find yourself, you can always affirm and tell yourself and tell others, God is on your side. Not because of who you are, but because who he is and what he has done for you in Jesus. One of my favorite kids' books is uh, a book called uh, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And uh, it's a great book if you haven't read it. But in the book, there's a refrain, and it says, over and over, it says things like this. They're on the bear hunt, and they go through various obstacles, and um, each one you'd want to miss if you could, and they can't. And so then the refrain in the book, is, it goes like this. It says, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. That's what the life of faith is like. That's what it is like to discover that God is your help. There's no way around it. You have to go through it. You have to go through the life of faith in fellowship with Jesus. And when you do that, you discover that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue to work our way through these psalms, we pray that you would 
you would help us to see that whether in moments of distress or in moments of rest or in moments of uh, need for help, we ask that you would show yourself to us. You would help us to to see in Jesus that um, you are on our side and you can't but be. And we pray that um, our pride would give way to humility and that our fear would give way to rejoicing as we reflect on and hear about Jesus, especially as we continue to move through our worship this evening and anticipate the Lord's table. Help us to know that the Lord is on the side of those who are desperately in need of grace. And we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.